Greetings, Crosswalk Church, and a big hello from Portland, Oregon. My family and I are so excited to be back home in the beautiful Pacific Northwest and have the opportunity to help bring a new expression of the gospel to this city. We thank you for your prayers and support as we continue to do the work of planting this church in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. Luckily, I've been reading my book on how to plant a church during a pandemic uh, but there's actually not a book, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're probably gonna be writing it. So if you find one, send it to me, let me know. I'm standing just above the International Rose Garden here in Portland. It sits just above the downtown area and was established in 1917. It is full of over 650 varieties of rose bushes. It smells amazing and it is in part responsible for the city's nickname as a city of roses. I used to come here with my grandmother who loved roses. The first thing she did when she moved to this area was to plant her own little rose garden so she didn't have to drive all the way down here to see them every day. Portland is a beautiful city with a great culture and a people who truly celebrate their uniquenesses. But if I'm honest, Portland, like all of the cities represented by our crosswalk campuses, Redlands, Chattanooga, Foothills, Northeast Atlanta, Clinton, and now Denver, Portland is a place in need. I was driving downtown looking for a place to record the sermon when I saw how much the city had changed since I last visited. I noticed that like many cities in the last several weeks, it has changed a lot. Uh, boarded up businesses, graffiti covered streets, and thousands of signs from the last five weeks of protests. But even before the protests began, Portland was changing. I used to help out with our neighbors without homes in downtown. And there were a lot of them back then, but with COVID and the state of our world, the population of those without homes has grown exponentially. In Portland, you're allowed to set up tents on sidewalks and on public grounds for shelter, and the city is becoming lined with tents. The hurt is real, the struggle is evident, and as I drove through this city that I love, my heart broke. This city, our cities, now maybe more than ever need love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. Today, as we continue the series of Faith by Design, going through the book of James, we find an answer to what's happening in our world. We see a, prob a way to measure the problem with much of Christianity today, and we uncover the key ingredient for how to live differently, to love well. Today, we focus on James 2, 14 to 26. It's a famous passage about faith and works. Famous because many have tried to use this passage to prove that we are saved by what we do instead of the one we do it for. On the surface, it seems to contradict the writings of Paul that says there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, that salvation comes through faith in God and that faith is a gift from God so that no one can boast. But we'll come to understand what James was saying and who he was saying it to and why this passage speaks to a core issue with so many of us today. So before we dive into the passage, let's do a little macro view of the problem the passage seems to address. And that problem is the apparent growing chasm between what we as Christians say and what we as Christians do, between what we profess to believe and how we behave. No doubt, the perception of Christians in our world today is getting more and more negative. Many studies suggest that people outside Christianity view Christians negatively. One such study revealed that the top five characteristics that come to mind when people who aren't Christians des describe Christians are anti-gay, judgmental, hypocritical, too involved in politics and irrelevant. But their view of Jesus is different. Jesus is often seen as loving and accepting, someone who practiced what he preached, who lived a life of service and sacrifice to his very last breath. 
So why the difference? What's going on? Well, the Bible has a word for those who say they believe one way but behave differently. That word is hypocrite. We use it the same way today, but the original word in the Greek was used as a label for theater actors. It referred to a pretender, someone with two faces. But I would argue that the problem with many of the so-called Christians today is that we aren't truly hypocrites, but are instead simply showing others by our actions what we truly believe and where we truly put our trust. Before we unpack that, let's look at the text. First, we must understand that James is writing to Jews who grew up following the law of God, meditating and memorizing scripture and praying the Hebrew prayers their whole life. Many of them did these things out of ritual. They were going through the motions, but their lives hadn't changed. Then Jesus entered the scene and challenged everything. And now James is writing to these Jews about how the life committed to Jesus is different. James 2.14 begins, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, and eat well. But then, you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now first, it helps to understand what James was talking about when he used the word faith because he'll do so 11 times in this passage. The term faith has always been a little elusive to me. I don't know about you, but is faith what I believe? Is it how I believe? Is it something else? Where does it come from? Well, the Greek word for, the, for faith is the word pistis, which can also be translated as trust or confidence. So you could say, who or what do you trust in? Where do you rest your confidence? And what's interesting about this word for faith is that it always refers to something that is given by God. Faith, believing, trusting in God is something we're enabled to do only because of God. It is a gift. James is saying then in these first few verses that if your faith doesn't result in producing good fruit or actions in your life, then maybe it's a false faith. It isn't from God or it isn't in God. He is saying that our fruit are a metric of where we've placed our trust. The example he uses here is very practical. He says, if you pass someone who is literally hungry and thirsty and naked, and all you do is throw a bunch of empty words their way, then maybe something's wrong with your faith. Maybe you've put your trust in something or someone other than God. What do I mean? I'll give you an, an extreme example from the world of Christianity, then a few others to consider. Many of us have heard of a place called the Westboro Baptist Church. This church, its members, they're famous for protesting at funerals of fallen soldiers with signs that say horrible things like God hates you and God is your enemy and God is America's terrorist. They are infamously and extremely anti-gay, even protesting at the funerals of children who were killed in the 2012 mass shooting in Newton, Connecticut, saying, that God sent the the gunman as a judgment on that state's pro-gay policies. Now, one might say that these people are hypocrites, especially if that person believes that Jesus taught love and not hate. However, I would argue that these people weren't acting from their point of view as hypocrites. You see, if you read their belief statements on their website, which I don't necessarily recommend doing, but if you do, you'll see that they believe in a God who hates more than one who loves, a God who is waiting to destroy his enemies, and that for every verse of love in the Bible, they say there are two or more verses of hate. 
So these people are simply living out their faith. Their faith or trust placed in an angry and violent God leads them to act in the same way. But this doesn't just apply to their church life. The founder of the Westboro Baptist Church has been accused by his children and grandchildren of being an abusive husband and father who is continually angry and violent. The founder and their shrinking number of followers are resembling the God they believe in, the God they've put their trust in, which I think the rest of us are doing to one degree or another. Faith always produces fruit, good or bad. For example, there are those of us who have put their trust in the God of the prosperity gospel, believing that if you do things right in this life, God will bless you with finances and riches beyond your wildest imagination. These people fly around the world in their private jets and live in their enormous mansions, believing that those who don't enjoy life like they do simply don't believe enough. There are those who believe in a God who must be appeased, a God who seeks not to save, but to destroy. These people produce fruit or works in their lives of fear, scared of messing up, of missing out on eternity. There are those who follow the white Jesus, or the God who loves only that which they deem is pure and perfect. Sadly, the God these people picture looks an awful lot like themselves. There are those who believe in a distant God who created us way back when, but isn't really involved in our day-to-day lives. We call these people deists, and a person who believes in a distant and uninvolved God may just go to church for an hour or two a week, but not let that influence the rest of their lives. After all, God doesn't really care all that much, so why should they? Of course, you can put your faith and trust outside of God. We would call this idolatry. If you put your faith or trust in money, then you live your life in such a way as to obtain as much of it as you can. We also put our trust in power, influence, education, politics, accomplishment. And I know I often struggle with putting my trust in me, my abilities to perform and succeed in this life. Those of us who do this strive to be seen by others as successful and we fear failure. There are many studies that show we become what we trust. In the world of faith, we become what we worship. And this is made evident in how we act, or as James says, our fruit. 20th century author A.W. Tozer once wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He went on to say that we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Were we to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Author Gregory Boyd in his book, Cross Vision, wrote, it's impossible to exaggerate the importance of a believer's mental representation of God for the way you imagine God largely determines the quality of your relationship with God. He went on to write that there is mounting neurological evidence that a person's mental representation of God significantly affects their quality of life for better or for worse. Or like James says, faith automatically produces fruit in your life for good or for bad. What you believe in, what you trust in, you become. This is why we spend so much time when we worship together trying to know who Jesus really is. We spend time on understanding God because it influences the kind of people we become. Faith produces fruit. James goes on to write, verse 18, Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. 
You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Now this part of the pericope always gets me. Even the demons believe in God. So James is asking, how are you and I any different than the demons? James would have seen Jesus encounter demons, and when he did, the demons were never confused about who Jesus was. They knew he was the Son of God. They knew he was the almighty, all-powerful God who created the heavens and the earth. They knew they had to do whatever he said. So what James is saying here is, if you say you believe, how are you any different from the demons? What difference does your belief, your faith, make in your life? If it doesn't produce good fruit, then it's futile worthless. It means nothing. Jesus said that it is by our fruit, our actions, that people will know us and they will know the God we follow. Maybe that's why the Apostle Paul continually prayed for us to know God better. In Paul's four letters written from prison, when Paul and the people he was writing to were facing trying times and difficult circumstances, I find it interesting that he doesn't pray for himself or them to be freed from their circumstances. What he does pray is for all of us to know God better. In Ephesians 1.17, Paul prays for us to have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that we may know God. In Ephesians 3.18 and 19, Paul prays for us to be able to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowing that we might be rooted and established in love. In Colossians 1.9, Paul prays for us to be filled with and growing in the knowledge of God. In both Philippians and Colossians, Paul writes beautiful hymns on who Jesus is, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and a servant who emptied himself, becoming fully obedient even to death in order to save us from our sins. It seems as though when the church was facing trials, when there were problems and difficulties, Paul's answer was to remind people about who Jesus is because he knew the better we knew God and his love in his love, the better people we'd become. And the better people we'd become, the better fruit we'd produce. And the better fruit we produced, the more others would come to know God. And the more they came to know who God really is, the more the, more the world would be won over with his love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. James end this ends this passage with two stories of heroes of the Jewish faith, Abraham and Rahab. They were far from perfect, but God revealed himself to them and they chose to not only believe him, but to act on their belief. And that, my friends, is what James is saying. Acting on who we believe God to be, living our lives trusting in the God who is faithful even when we are not, believing in the God who loved everyone, even his enemies, so much that he gave his one and only son. Choosing to believe in this God is the first step in helping to heal the world. Jesus said it this way, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, if we find and believe in the God we encounter in the scriptures and on the cross, then out of us will flow streams of blessings, good fruit that can change the world. The God we believe in informs the people we become. So how do we come to believe in this kind of God? A loving, redemptive, transformative, sacrificial, grace-filled kind of God. Well, we surround ourselves with people who exude these qualities. We do a deep dive into the scriptures to find that the God on the cross is the same God of all scripture. We pray continually and ask for God's help to love as he loves us, to grow the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And then 
We act in faith, in trust, believing that everything we want to believe about God deep down in our souls is actually true. He is faithful. He is loving and forgiving. He is powerful and he is with us. Several years back when I was serving as a chaplain for Walla Walla University in Washington State, I had a student come into my office after a worship service. You could tell she had something heavy on her heart, something she was struggling with. She said she had never been baptized and that she really struggled with that decision. Her struggle was that she knew she loved Jesus, but she wasn't clear on why one had to be baptized, especially since Jesus seemed to be able to save without having to baptize. She then referenced the thief on the cross. I could tell in her tone of voice that she was genuinely searching, wondering if she had missed something, wondering if maybe she got something wrong about God. Maybe even worried that she and her faith was misplaced. I did what I often do when I find myself in these types of situations. I pray, asking God to give me the words and help me help her see him more clearly. As we talked, I found myself led to an illustration about marriage. I told her that when a couple falls in love, they do so in their hearts first. And then when they want the whole world to know about their love, when they want to be held accountable for their love, they make the decision to get married. When they do, they vow to love this other person, their best friend, until the day they die. And they do so in front of family and friends. In other words, they act on their love. I talked about God's love for her that existed before she was born and how her wrestling was proof that God was in her life. She listened fervently. And when it seemed like she had enough to think about, I ended our time with a prayer and told her that I'd be happy to continue to meet with her and explore these things. I figured it'd be a long road ahead as she had clearly been wrestling with this for years. But God was on the move. Later that day, I received a message from her that surprised me. She simply said, Patty, I'm ready to get married to my best friend. Call me. <laughs> I knew what she meant. She wanted to get baptized. Her faith in God and her understanding of his love for her produced a fruit that caused her to want to let the whole world know that she believed in him and loved him back. In all my years of ministry, this was one of my favorite baptisms I've ever had the privilege to perform. Her family, friends, and I showed up ready for a grand celebration. When it was time for the ceremony, she came walking in as her friends played a love song. She was wearing white and she held her vows in her hand, expressing her commitment to the God in which she was placing her full trust. I read back to her vows from scripture, words of God's forever love for her and his commitment to be with her always to the end of the age. Then we headed into the water and I prefer, performed her ceremony, which was the fruit of her faith. When she came up out of the water, oh man, we had a good old fashioned party with great food and music and friendship like all baptisms should be. All she did was act on her faith, a faith that was given to her by God, that God cultivated and grew, that eventually produced the fruit in her life. She surrendered her life fully and completely to her best friend. We all produce the fruit of that which we've placed our trust in. If we say we believe in God the Father and his son Jesus, but our lives don't bless others, then maybe we placed our faith in the wrong God. For I believe that when we come face to face with the one true God that we find in the scriptures, when we encounter his overwhelming, never ending love, and that knowledge becomes a part of who we are, it will produce a fruit in us that will last a lifetime. The city I am in, the city of Portland, needs me to get serious about knowing who God is and how God loves so that I may love him and others like how he loves me. 
And I pray that for the sake of each of our cities in the Crosswalk family, for all the hurt and the pain in this world, that we would all come to know this God, the God of love more and more each day, so the fruit of our faith would be good and lasting and healing and life-changing. Because what this world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. Amen.